huge giant, you know, walking amidst the, the clouds or what have you. Metal music. It's hard to write a song in an entire minor key and talk about, you know, nice things. Heavier, obviously, doomier at times. When he came over and, God, when he started singing, I couldn't believe what's coming out of his little body. So he said, anyone got an idea of what we should do as a stage set? He's a set stone. So there's this dwarf who comes out and he's walking across the top of uh, this stone hinge. Pierce Black Welcome back to the Sabbography for the Masses that is Sabbath Bloody Podcast. I'm assuming you're returning here. I mean, who starts with the fucking headless cross, people? <laughs> Hell, maybe you do. The Martin Only cats out there just dropping in to fact check my ass here. If that's you, you are, of course, very welcome to this safe place for all forms of Sabbath worship. Let's open the gates of hell together and enjoy the evolution of the Sabs and close out another decade for this podcast journey here. Wise up to all Sabbath with me, Solange. Yeah, so back up onto the Headless Cross here, though, because we have a pretty damn interesting platter to close out the 80s, really setting up what they move forward with here. And you certainly don't need to spin this fucker backwards to get your goddamn Lucifer fix. Although, I'll be honest, guys, even with how much my taste has been evolving to accept some of the more showy vocal stylings of Dio and the likes, and away from my dear, raw 70s Aussie, which I still favor, sorry about that, but that's just my taste. It's always going to be that way. On this album today, though, the lyrics, the themes, and also the vocal delivery, it kind of fatigued me a little, I'm not going to lie. It took me a while to get into this record properly. But like a fine wine, when I let it breathe a little bit, stepped back, and actively listened to what was going on musically, then it really worked for me. So let's get into how the boys arrive at the Headless Cross in the first place here before I completely unload my feelings on it. So after the Eternal Idol had fizzled out, we were left with Iomi, Nichols, Terry Chimes on drums, and Tony the Cat Martin in the Sabbath camp. So no bassist in play, because old Joe Burt was gone just as quickly as he arrived. The Sabbath was under new management too, and Iomi had just secured a new record deal, this time with a smaller but more kind of alternative-leaning outfit called IRS Records. <laughs> and shit, hadn't Iomi spent the better part of the 80s avoiding the IRS? <laughs> Now he's in their fucking record label? No, it's the International Records Syndicate, not the Internal Revenue Service that signs him to this deal. IRS was a small label, actually started by Miles Copeland, who, if you recognize his last name there, he's the brother of police drummer Stuart Copeland. And IRS's claim to fame was in the college rock kind of boom of the late 80s, early 90s, most notably R.E.M. So what's the frequency, Kenneth? They wanted a metal act in there, too, because it was all the rage in 89 to have a metal band as well. So I guess Miles was like, who's metal? Black Sabbath, right? Are they available? Well, yes, they are. Well, it's Black Sabbath featuring Tony Iommi, but good enough. Sign him up. (laughs) They actually offered Tony a true hands-off kind of deal. You do whatever you want, man. We'll fucking distribute it the best we can, which is fucking cool of them, given the state of the band at the time. As much as I dug the last album, Sabbath were not a hot commodity in 88-89. Aside from securing the new record deal, though, this post-idol incarnation of Sabbath did also play one gig in this transition period. Apparently, 
Tony Iommi specifically was kind of roped into this local charity gig by one of his neighbors who was a professional wrestler by what I've read in the Mick Walls book. It was in the UK, so I don't know. Is there a famous British wrestler? Any pro wrestling fans listening here who know who was running charity gigs in the Midlands in 1988? For the gig, Jeff Nichols plays the bass. And it turned out to be Terry Chimes' last kick behind the kit with the Sabs as well. Sunday, May 20th, 1988 at Oldbury West Midlands. I got the handbill here too. The whole thing turned out to be a bit of a scam in the end, but an interesting part of Sab's history. It reads here, names appearing on stage, Black Sabbath, UB40. Well, they were big, right? I, I know of them at least. Strange opener for the Sabs, that's for sure. But the flyer reads, be seen on Central TV, five quid a pop. So there you go. I don't know about you, but I'm in for a fiver. And they only play three songs, Neon Knights, Paranoid, and the surprise of the night was Heart Like a Wheel. I think that's the only time that Martin does the full rendition of that one, too. Which doesn't surprise me. I doubt they played anything from 7 Star on the tour after this. As we learned last episode, even Iommi, he wasn't a fan of Sabbath featuring Tony Iommi. <laughs> so get off my dick about not enjoying that album, okay? <laughs> I did enjoy it, but, you know, it's not one of my favorites. That's the only live appearance of Sabbath in 1988. Around this time, Tony Martin was looking towards the future after things kind of go silent following that lovely gig on a project called Blue Murder. Band, I've been meaning to give a listen, actually. They also had Sabbath members pass through the ranks, most notably Ray Gillen and a drummer bloke who we'll get to here very shortly. But it's important to note that Martin was was still not kind of feeling like he was proper in the Sabbath. He's mentioned it in interviews himself that he felt like a bit of an outsider coming on during Idol to kind of just cover for what Gillen had done and he didn't really know if Iommi wanted to carry on with him so that explains why he was quick to join on with this blue murder project ultimately he just wrote and demoed but didn't appear on the album following that the cat also landed a vocal spot on 1988's force field 2 the talisman album a studio only kind of project the second collaboration of guitarist ray fenwick and that same drummer that i've been alluding to here you know, fuck it, let's just bring him in now. Cozy motherfucking Powell, the next member of Black Sabbath. It's not outright said here, but Tony Martin must have been a huge part of Cozy and Iommi eventually deciding to work together in Sabs, right? With all these little crossovers between Martin and Cozy in the hiatus period of 88. But it is kind of stated in multiple books that Iommi had tried each time that the band needed a drummer to get Cozy Powell and dating back to the very first time that Ward went AWOL, but... Let's let Cozy speak for himself here. Tony asked me about 10 years ago um, because of commitments. I couldn't do it at, th at that time. And then he asked me again about three or four years after that. I, I always wanted to get involved. It was just because of the situations in the past. The timing wasn't right or the, the cir circumstances weren't right. This time was, was perfect. And we spent most of, uh, the, most of last year working on the ideas, the three of us, Tony, the two Tonys and myself. And um, it was just, once we started, it was almost as if we'd been, been, together, been together for uh, for ages and ages. Yeah, it was. No trouble at all. Nice to, to come in and, and, and get asked to, to contribute as far as the, the writing was concerned and also to co-produce it. And um, I think the direction of Sabbath should remain the way, it, the, the way we've, we've done on the, on the record. It's important not to, to commercialise it too much and very important also that we that keep the direction that Tony's always uh, pointed the band in. So there you go, much more than just filling the drum spot here. Iommi's getting a proper creative partner, a co-producer, which he hasn't really had since Dio, really. 
Powell actually stayed over at Iommi's house for the month of August to kind of consummate things, as it were, coming up with the foundation for this next album. Chilling like a villain with Iommi and his fucking Rottweilers running around. And here they are, the two of them here, discussing the process further. Iommi first. Of all the riffs that we've got at home, um, a lot of these were just off-the-cuff new ones, weren't they? There wasn't mm. sort of... We didn't use the old ones that's there. We start, might have started off with one of the old ones, but ended up replacing it with a, with a new riff. Yeah, I remember when I when I got together with Tony initially uh, in the middle of last year, and and he said, um, "I've got a got a few riffs lying around. I'll get you some tapes." And he came up with two complete uh, sports bags full of cassettes. <laughs> and I, I mean, I must say there there must have been, I suppose, twenty or thirty riffs per side per cassette, and there was. A, getting on for 50 cassettes so you can imagine I mean trying to wade through that lot I think you should open a shop Wyoming Riffs Limited <laughs> we, we had a sort of rather inebriated nights at Tony's house and we came up with the first three tracks which was the Headless Cross When Death Calls and Nightwing all in the same evening we had the, the structures for all three three tracks unfortunately we had a tape recorder because we never remembered them the next day oh, yeah. <laughs> got into. I don't know how we worked the tape recorder after <laughs> all right so the riffs were coming fast and furious this is great as much as I've enjoyed all this studio fuckery that went on during Eternal Idol it's great to see Iommi sounding so excited and focused and mature heading into an album or completing the album I guess when that interview was done but I don't know if he had like kicked the Charlie or something before launching into this era, but he certainly is less of a cunt in interviews, more humble, and I believe Cozy's presence had a lot to do with that. Here's a quick read from Tony Iommi's book, Iron Man, where he elaborates on this respect. Cozy was really helpful. He stayed for two or three weeks at my house, and we'd sit in a room, get a bottle of wine, and we'd go. I had all these ideas. Cozy would tap along and come up with ideas as well. We had this tape player going and just jammed around. If nothing came up, we'd chuck it, and we'd go for the next one. Maybe we'd go for a walk, come back, have another go. It really worked well. We'd get Tony Martin over and then get into the rehearsal room and try it with everybody. We felt inspired. We were coming up with stuff, and we were really pleased with it. So there you go. That kind of tells you there, too, that Tony Martin comes back to the fold and carries on with them. So the plan moving forward is going to be Iomi, Martin, and Powell, and Jeff Nichols, of course, really sinking into the writing process for The Headless Cross. So late in the summer, 1988, they move into Woodcray Studios, a little a little kind of farmhouse studio, not far from London. The studio at Woodcray is nice and fucking isolated, so Iomi, Martin, and Nichols would actually stay there in the farmhouse, and Cozy would come in on his motorbike and then go home because he lived not far from there. But there was no drama whatsoever, really. No drunken car racing or tomfoolery like we got with Gillen at the manor. It, they just fucking got it done. And Iommi and Cozy really brought out the best in each other, and it shows on this record. Here's Cozy Powell and Tony Martin, actually, just kind of talking about the amount of respect that there was when they were working on this album in Woodcray. Everybody's in the band because they're, they're good at what they do, and everybody was left to do their job their, themselves. I mean, Tony wasn't breathing down my neck when I did the rhythm tracks. Similarly, I wasn't when he was doing his guitars, nor were either of us when Tony was doing the vocals. And I think if you were given that trust, you're not going to abuse it between fellow musicians anyway and you're just going to get on and you're going to do the very best you can so many situations i've been into in the past where people have really told you beat by beat note by note what words to sing and how to sing them i don't really think you're going to get a great performance out of somebody if you're telling them exactly how to do something particularly if he isn't feeling comfortable on it the guys work so well together that they both seem to have the same picture mm. of the end result so mm. that things they do 
aren't argued because they both agree like with what's got to happen. So the sound that's on the the Headless Cross album is is it. It couldn't have been any better, I don't think. You could have messed for days and weeks more, and it mm. wouldn't have got any better, I don't think. After about three months at Woodcray, the album was close to completion. And one important thing was still missing, though. The motherfucking bass guitar. They were still waiting on Geezer to show up. And I recall reading somewhere, probably Mick Wall's book, I don't have the quote in front of me here, but Iomi was pushing very hard towards Geezer coming back. Geezer even said that he would come to his house and like park in his driveway, just waiting there in the rain, <laughs> hoping for him to come out and run away with him. I just picture Iomi pulling a John Cusack with a big boom box, playing rough mixes of Killing the Spirit World or some shit. We need you, Geese. Look what Martin's writing. <laughs> but the fact is, Iomi knew how much Geezer could bring. And even putting aside my intense love for Geezer's bass playing, as far as the what ifs go in the Black Sabbath world, for me, this is a big one. Like, what if Geezer was on the fucking Headless Cross? I think it would be worth holding out for in my books. Cozy, however, wasn't willing to wait on Geezer, so he puts forward the idea of a session bassist, Lawrence Cottle in particular. Now, Cottle is a well-respected session player, more for kind of jazz fusion-leaning kind of shit, or so I've heard. And I'm not trying to say he's not a very capable cat or anything, and, and him and Cozy had worked together before, so he was able to lay down the tracks, remotely I might add, while they were waiting for the glorious call from Geezer. There was good reason why Geezer had been ghosting them, actually. Because Geezer was already gearing up to join on with Ozzy fucking Osbourne. That's right. Which he did, forming the outstanding No Rest for the Wicked tour lineup over there. You had Geezer, Randy Costello, and a young promising Jersey Hair Farm guitarist going by the moniker of Zach Wild. Clean cut Zach Wild. So, that was probably a little bit of a shot to the pills for Tony Boy, right? Luckily, things were cooking so well with Cozy and Martin that it didn't derail the momentum of creating this album. In fact, the delay had also freed up Whitesnake bassist Neil Murray, Cozy's first choice for the bass slot, actually. So he was able to come on for the upcoming tour. Unfortunately, they didn't retrack with Murray, because he's a killer bassist. He would have knocked it out of the park, too. But the aforementioned Lawrence Cottle bass tracks are still what we get on the album. And I'm sorry, Lawrence. I'm not trying to slag you too much here but i can't stand the fucking bass tracks on headless cross this absolute fucking session work no connection to the feel of the songs whatsoever but you know probably most of you won't give a fuck about that right the bass who cares right (laughs) fuck you (laughs) geezer is fucking most missed at this point for me eternal idol worked because you had daisley in there who in my opinion is a great second option to elevating the songs in the four string slot and bringing a very geezer-esque approach to the lyric writing but Coddle, he fucking stinks. No sugarcoating it. There's some fretless bass in here, and it just doesn't jive for me. But let's get into the songs, right? So the album opens with Mr. Jeff Nichols on the Casio. (laughs) A little minute and change of some satanic atmosphere here to set things up. Really the only Sabbath album outside of the debut to open with just atmospherics. No riffs to start. So already you get the vibes that this is going to be a different trip. I mean, I've become so accustomed to being hit with the high-energy opener since the 80s began. There's no turn up the neon nights here, lads, sorry. The opening piece is actually called The Gates of Hell, which is a title that I alluded to in the last episode. It had been kicking around in Naomi's head and was originally what he wanted to call the Eternal Idol LP, actually, using another Rodin sculpture of the same name as inspiration. But the atmospherics here to open this LP work really well. It's back to kind of that born-again style of keys, like on the dark and Stonehenge. 
just a short, eerie pad to get your head into things, you know, for the journey that they're going to take us on here. Now, as I said off the top, I'm a little lukewarm on the overall vibes of the Headless Cross, and the second track is one of them. This was the single, too, in the video, because it's the title track. My favorite Sabbath video so far, actually, which isn't saying much. Still, as camp as the rest are, there's something charming about this one. The band performs in a castle at night, surrounded by flames and fog, while hooded figures torch a cross, or they carve a cross and raise it up, and Martin's way into it, <laughs> trying his best to do some Dio sign language. It's fucking awesome, guys. Just go check it out. Unfortunately, I hate to say this, but my new friend, Mr. Tony Martin, is the one that's not really connecting with me much on this album, and he's syncing things a little bit for me. I really don't like his high harmonies that are thrown in everywhere. It's much more prominent on this album than on Idol, because really, he didn't really do it back there, so I guess he was more or less locked into the Ray Gillen template, because the songs were already kind of recorded, which is a more natural, kind of single, powerful voice approach. On Headless Cross, though, we're getting a lot more studio vocal tracks here, blatantly layered, less immediate. I know this is a personal taste thing, really, and I don't mind double tracking here and there to punch in parts, but I find it's overused on the album by Martin here, and it's positioned in such a way that it comes off as him almost overcompensating, you know? Like, does he need to deliver every fucking title of every song with this high overdub? It's just, it's lazy to me. Lazy is harsh, actually. Maybe it's the opposite. It's, he's overworking shit, you know? And for this album, he's kind of been given the book by Iomi and Powell. And that's pretty fucking intimidating there. So some overcompensation is to be expected from the rookie, as he dubs himself, with being blessed and cursed to come up with all the words on this album. Headless Cross is a, is a place. By a place called Redditch. And uh, some hundreds of years ago, it was wiped out by the plague. And uh, the people were... <laughs> their belief basically... Uh, was in the cross. They thought that it had saved them, which it didn't. But um, it was obviously a spiritual thing for them. But uh, it was just a, a place that I used to live in, and it, it, the area has got... It was actually mentioned in the Doomsday Book, if I remember mm -hmm. rightly. And uh, it's got such an atmosphere in, in certain places. You know, it just sparked off imagination. I would have actually liked the song if it had it came off more like how Martin explains it in that clip back there like the crisis of faith of the people of this town and how their prayers were unanswered during the Black Plague. So they tear down the cross. That, that is fucking prime stuff, actually. But unfortunately, the story kind of gets lost in theatrics here. It's more, I don't know, fucking like Sunday school cautionary tale kind of sounding. Hand of God striking down. Like, to bring it back again to all the fucking Dio songs, there was definitely some fantastical shit mixed in there, but there was this strong human quality to it. And that's lacking in Martin's work, for me at least. Track three as well, Devil and Daughter. I fucking love the song. It's catchy as hell riff-wise. It has a fantastic drive to it, but that same campy kind of disconnected hammer horror kind of feel, as mentioned, kind of sinks in, and it feels like he's taking the piss at times, honestly. Like, you can get dark without going cliche. I mean, look at NIB. That's all about fucking Satan, but there is some interesting human shit in there. Or a better example, look at the progression of War Pigs. There it is, like prime fucking geezer crafting a song for you. The first draft was like one of these 
headless cross tracks at Walpurgis with all the witches gathering and eating dead rats and shit, which is cool. But when it came to actually really crafting the song, taking it to the next level for the album, Geezer made it a lament on the politics of war, money and power, disconnection of the powerful from the masses, like fucking absolute classic themes in that one. With Devil and Daughter, it's like Martin just went to Blockbuster or whatever the fuck UK video shops there were in 89 and copied the synopsis off the back of some Italian horror video, you know? Here's Martin's lyrics on Devil and Daughter just for a sampling, then I'll fucking let this go. Silence is mocking the dawn of the new day. Devil and Daughter are both on their way. The evil of her nature collects in her eyes. With him, there's no fear of dawn bringing light. Baptized with fire, too wild to be tamed, she's hot, (laughs) evil, and ready to take any man. Let no one put asunder the power of the pain. (laughs) Jesus. He is the master of hell, riding again. Devil and daughter, pleasure and pain. Devil and daughter, this is the end. Like, man, this is making Dio's solo lyrics sound like grounded country ballads, right? (laughs) Way over the top. And he continues, a thousand times over, you'll hear the wind... In the name of hell, these sinners have never sinned. But Satan never listens to their words they send, drenching the soul with blood. When will it end? Yeah, when will it end? Okay, so there you go. Martin decided everyone thinks Sabbath is all but the devil, so let's fucking give it to them. So fair play. It just gets tired after track three for me. But maybe you guys dig this. Yes, yes, Satan. Say Satan again. <laughs> Devil and Daughter musically, like I said, is one of my favorites from the LP, actually. The singing is great on there, too, I must say. There's another Aussie crossover here, too, content-wise. Apparently, the original title for Devil and Daughter was Devil's Daughter. But on the Aussie 1988 offering No Rest for the Wicked, you look at track three on there, and it's just that, Devil's Daughter, parentheses, Holy War. There's another instance of this, actually, later, too, with the track Called the Wild, which was originally titled Hero which is also another track from No Rest for the Wicked. Albeit a bonus track, but still, it's pointed out in the Sab's lid out there that there was this crossover. They also make some claims that these title similarities were no coincidence and that it had something to do with Bob Daisley being in both camps around this time. But ultimately, Sabbath just retitled the tracks anyway, so I don't think there was any kind of drama around it. If anything, they were avoiding the drama, you know, paying respect to Ozzy's camp. I don't think it was called out by either of them. Like they were battling it out for these generic titles. I mean, fuck, how many songs are called Hero? You got fucking Enrique Iglesias, right? Wasn't there like a goddamn Nickelback song called that? But so the song Devil and Daughter, though, is very keys heavy too, as is much of Headless Cross. So that might scare off a lot of the Sabbath purists. But I mean, come on, if you're not letting in the keyboards at this point, you've probably checked out long ago. Jeff is bringing some pretty cool shit in here too. So the next track... This is a good one, too. When Death Calls. I mean, it's good, but it kind of lags. I still really like it, though. This is where the album begins to kind of decline, though. The next few tracks. It settles into itself here. And ultimately, When Death Calls is remembered more or less for Iommi getting his best buddy, Brian May, on the record, right? That's what everybody talks about when it comes to the track. It starts all ballad-like with a lead bass part, actually. Though, on the album, it sounds more like it might have been on the keyboard. I can't really tell with... Cottle's lame-ass bass tone, but live, though, it's definitely played on the bass by the great Neil Murray. You gotta check that out. Super cool spot for him, too, with his fucking bright red bass. We'll get to Neil soon enough here, but that bass keyboard part climbs into 
a pretty decent lift for the chorus. The when death calls. <laughs> not really for me, the gang vocals. I'm not a fan of that. And it kind of steps on the riff a little bit, if I'm completely honest. That chorus would be much stronger without the when death calls call outs. If you just let the riff kind of go with the dent, 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 and then still have those, this is the hour of time, all those parts. Just drop that fucking cheesy gang vocal. Let the riff breathe a little bit, you know? Oh shit, super nuts. Seems like there's been a kill in the spirit world here. My mic interface just took a fucking shit and died. As I ranted on here. So I'm on the auxiliary mic here, my fucking phone. So apologies for the quality change here, but we got to get through this headless cross here. Fucking hell. Now I have to buy a new fucking mic. Death is called. <laughs> anyway, that's where I was. I played it back and I pretty much finished my rants and thoughts on that track. So moving on, track five and six, which for me are interchangeable. Neither of them blows me away. I wouldn't miss either of them if they were cut or cut down or something. So with Killing the Spirit World first, I really cannot stand the verses on this one. Like, really, absolutely atrocious stuff. It's almost comical when it hits, isn't it? Like, like did Michael Bolton get a second shot at the Sabs here on this one? I mean, come on, even you Martin Katz, you gotta admit that there's something off with his part here. And it hits so fast, too. Like, Cozy does some badass run on his toms to open and... You're like, okay, here we go. And then it's fucking dog shit. <laughs> the song was apparently based on a haunted cottage in Wales. The lyrics don't directly reflect that, but that's what Tony Martin says. I wish they took the verses from the next one, Call of the Wild, and placed them with the chorus parts in Spirit World. Maybe that would salvage something, but you know what? That's just me trying my best to spin it here. Neither of these tracks really speak to me, so... Here, let's just pull up the lyrics here for the next one, Call of the Wild, which is definitely my least favorite on the LP. Let's see how fast it takes Martin here to mention Satan, shall we? <laughs> here are the words here. Oh, geez, the guards are coming. <laughs> yeah, I'm outside as well. I mean, I figure if I'm going to record on my fucking phone, I'm going to enjoy the sunshine that's out here. <laughs> anyway, the lyrics are Call of the Wild. In this... In this last and final hour, you can't hide. There's nowhere now that you can run. All eyes are on you, like a lost eternal light. Princes and kings, demons with wings, summon your fears from hell. <laughs> Fucking LC, I swear. I'm just reading them out here, too. Oh my god, just glancing through them here on my phone. You got Lucifer, hell, demons, wings. It's, it's just too much, man. So fuck it, let's move on to the highlights of this album here. I personally avoid the middle of this album, I will say that. It's just a bit much for me. There's also this weird sort of Middle Eastern part that kind of a Richie Blackmore style lick that Tony or even I think Jeff does it on the keyboard on the chorus. It's like a snake charmer kind of. <laughs> it doesn't work for me. But hey, the last two tracks, they more than make up for the stinkers here. So first of all, there's a familiar face. Motherfucking Black Moon rises up again in the track list. And just like the first take of it, there was a bonus track on the Eternal Idol. Martin is at his best here. And they take it to another level with Cozy on the drums. Slightly lower key change too, I think. It sounds fucking awesome on the Headless Cross. Might be my favorite track on the album, actually, if I'm honest, as far as replay value. It would be nice if they moved it up in the running order, though, you know? Between the stinkers that I just mentioned. Give us a little dirty blues stomp in there to break up that stuff. 
It's also been said that Cozy was sold on Tony Martin after hearing the original Black Moon. So this track is very important to solidifying this new lineup. And I totally get that too. Ooh, the devil is rising. It's, a, it's fucking awesome, man. I love the attack in Martin's voice on Black Moon. Okay, so we're almost through the album here. Black Moon sets up an epic, big closer, Nightwing. Fantastic dynamics in this one from all members, really, except for Coddle, of course. <laughs> this is when that farting fretless bass that I mentioned is in full effect. Just fucking terrible, but Bob Daisley, he is not. It's like he's trying for that killer part that Daisley did in the Shining intro, that kind of vibe anyway, but he just doesn't get there. But I won't get hung up on that, though, because this is my favorite track on the album. Nightwing is like a super strong closer again. Would I expect anything less from Sabbath? <laughs> no, sir, I would not. But also, I don't know if this has something to do with me loving it, but the vocal performance on Nightwing was a one-take recording that wasn't intended to be the final version. It was kind of just a guide track that Martin laid down, but it was so good that they had to fucking use it. So here's Martin and Cozy speaking about that magic that was the creation of Nightwing. I've really enjoyed working on this album passed out when you when you hear the the final product for the first time there's a couple of instances where one uh, on a track called nightwing and uh, that is a guide vocal and like i i wanted to do another vocal on that and cozy just wouldn't let me do it and i was going i can't see this you know just cuz he said wait till the end wait until it's finished boy you'll love it and we sort of got to the end and he didn't and <laughs> it was just great. do what you're starting out you know, it's just like, no no more beats <laughs> It's just the final, the final product is just. Um, but all the time it was coming together, you could feel it getting better and better each stage. Yeah. And Tony's vocal performance on that, when he first did it, in the in the studio, I was a guy. I was. I remember I was sitting outside the studio at the time. I was letting him get on with it, just because you know. Again, Tony's the sort of guy that you just you know he's going to do a good job. You just let him get on with it. But I heard this track going on outside, and I thought, blimey, this is really good. And then I came back into the studio and asked the engineer, I said, well, that was, he said, well, that was just a guide thing. I said, well, can you just make sure you keep that? Because that, <laughs> if that was a guide, I want him to make sure he sings that when he does the, goes for the real one. And the more I heard it, the more I, and Tony, again, really liked it. And we decided that it was such a good take. We'd like to keep it because they had the right feel. And that's so important with these tracks these days. You know, we've put a lot of thought into this album. We want it to, to come out the way we intended it to. And it is fantastic. This one gets the flag today. Oh, the riff compels me. The way the whole song builds and releases and then builds again, it's the perfect composition and a great use of instrument tones, you know? Like Iomi's solo was fucking spellbinding on this one. He even busts out some classical guitar, kind of nylon string kind of yoke. Or at least that's what I'm hearing, leading into the solo, you know? But the vocals here are the X Factor. Some next level shit from the cat, finally. <laughs> it makes me think, did they just overproduce uh, Martin's vocal takes on the rest of this album? Maybe. <laughs> I think I've made my point in that regard, but Nightwing gets the power of the riff today. Just the main riff, when that really hits, hell yes. The lyrics are literally about a bird of prey, as Martin explains in this clip here. Nightwing was a story about barn owls. About what? Barn owls, you know, birds. Oh, yeah? um, an owl that we have in England and it's pure white and it hunts at night and it's uh, looking at the dark side of a, a hunter, a night hunter. So it's, just, it's a story about nature, if you like. And people think that you're involved in Satanism and yeah. eating babies and you know, biting the heads off bats. Yeah. But it's, it's all, they're all stories about life. It's like an owl hunting in the night. 
But my interpretation of it, upon first hearing it, was that it was about a serial killer, like a Jack the Ripper style thing, kind of killing prostitutes at night. Tell every creature of the night the killer is around the bend. So I guess I took it kind of literally there. Shows how fucked up my head is, doesn't it? Thinking about killing hookers, but it's really about fucking birdies. <laughs> and there's also one bonus track as well. It appeared as a B-side to the single, a more kind of bluesy seven star style one this one is. Cloak and Dagger doesn't really fit the vibes of the album, so I think it was a good call keeping it as kind of a deep cut for people to find. So let's caravan this shit now. Iomi in the driver's seat, of course. Fucking cozy riding shotgun. Nichols and Murray in the back, and Tony Martin probably in the trunk with the gear. <laughs> I'm kidding. The band gets on very well this tour, so let's burn through some dates here. It is a funny story. I think those stories are kind of best in the caravan. May 31st, 1989, the first proper U.S. tour in three years for Sabbath commences in Poughkeepsie, New York. <laughs> Hello, Poughkeepsie. We fucking love you. <laughs> Sabbath wasn't doing that well in America, as just mentioned. So this tour turned into the last-ditch effort to get back into the Americans' favor again, sell some headless crosses. And it doesn't really catch on, unfortunately. They play about a quarter of the gigs booked, with Kingdom Come as their opener. They end up canceling after the New York State and Maine gigs. By the time they get into more northern territories like Cleveland and Canada even, the attendance is so dismal that they're being forced into smaller venues. So, Iomi, of course, must have been fucking livid, right? Going into Ticketmasters at every state going, Oi, why aren't you selling more Sabbath tickets, you bloody cunts? <laughs> I'm punchy, I will. <laughs> Eventually, it all fizzles out completely and management advises, Hey, why force the issue in America? Instead of hemorrhaging our money here, let's cancel the Midwest and Western gigs altogether. We know the shit's still hot over in Europe. It always has been, always will be. Which is true. I mean, Europe and the UK love all sabs. And that's why I live here, folks. <laughs> so let's just ignore that little US hiccup in the caravan and let's talk about the much more successful Euro swing they did. I'll bring up a set list here too. One second. Get it on my phone. Hopefully this podcast is still sounding all right. Okay, so for the live show, in support of this album, they, they didn't go with the regular Super Czar or E5-150 tape playing. Instead, and this is badass, they played the main theme from the Omen movie as the house lights went down. This would then segue into a taped recording of Gates of Hell, and then Cozy would kick into Headless Cross. That would be fucking epic. Start to a concert. And that intro tape of the Omen theme and Gates of Hell mixed together was pretty much used anytime Martin was in the band from that point forward. And with the iconic opener, Headless Cross, that kind of becomes Tony Martin's signature song, which is cool. I mean, I prefer his vocals on The Shining, if I were to pick a signature song from Martin, from what I've heard anyway. But Martin even tours to this day as Tony Martin's Headless Cross, so the cat fucking loves it. <laughs> And back to the typical set list here, too. Let's just burn through it. After Headless Cross, it's Die Young, Black Sabbath, Devil and Daughter is one of the new ones making the list, Iron Man, Children of the Grave, then some Dio, Heaven and Hell, Neon Knights, and Children of the Sea. Fucking awesome. Then they got Call of the Wild in here. I don't know about that, but... The Mob Rules comes in and kicks in, yeah. And then followed by When Death Calls is a new one. Uh, War Pigs is Shining. Good to see that still in there. There's a guitar solo here. And then the obligatory fucking Paranoid to close. I can't say I'm very hot on that set list there. No Sabbath bloody Sabbath love at all. 
There's no internal idol outside of The Shining. Good helping of Dio in there, so I'm glad that both children of the sea and the grave make it into the set. That's good to see them back to back, but no one can touch Dio's material anyway or do it justice. And Martin gets close, but even more so than the Aussie stuff, I personally don't like hearing Martin do Dio. The, the band toured Europe, Japan, England, did it all with ease. And then it gets interesting here because they were one of the first bands to tour Russia in 1989 after Gorbachev opened the country to the Western Axe, tore down the wall. And they played the fuck out of it, like 20 some odd gigs in a row. So once the gates opened, they stormed it. <laughs> the rubles must have been flowing in for them. They played 13 gigs at Moscow's Olympic Hall and then 12 gigs at EKS Hall in Lindengrad. So some of these were filmed too. Check them out on YouTube. Fantastic performances, huge crowds, just fucking awesome energy. It actually brings joy to my heart to see them rocking so hard after all the turmoil and letdowns on tour as of late. And the last show in Russia is December 8th, 1989. So the lads are back home for the holidays to close out the decade. Then Iomi and Powell start brushing up on their Viking history and shit and we prepare for our next adventure. But we've wrapped up the 80s here, dude. Sorry, I've kind of burned through this last part here, but it's time to get stoked now for the wicked 90s are upon us. But to me, the next one, they hit their stride. So, so as always, leave a review for the show on the iTunes there, if it still exists at this point. Five stars, if you please. And come on down to the mob that rules Twitter, too, at SabbathBloodyPC. Or email me your thoughts in the decade that was here, SabbathBloodyPodcast at gmail.com. Thank you to all those who stay on top of the feeds. Your listenership is what fuels these things. Don't forget that. We ain't in it for the money, honey. <laughs> At least I'm not. And I have to shell out money for a new fucking mic now. <laughs> all right. That is all. Tell all the creatures of the night. Bog blast all of you. <laughs>